So with, with that, uh, all, all over the city, uh, we've been participating with 10 other churches in this sermon series leading up to this event uh, that we're calling Joy in the City. And the, the place that that comes from is from uh, Acts 8, where uh, Philip shows up in, uh, and preaches the gospel in a city. And then through signs and wonders, just, just put, like demonstrates the reality of the kingdom has come. And Luke, at the end of that uh, story, he sums it all up and he says, and there was great joy in that city. And that's what we're after. That's the whole purpose behind this citywide sermon series, this citywide event, that we want that to be true of Altoona. Don't you want that to be true of the city that you live in? That, that it would be marked by joy? Isn't that what you want from your city? Or maybe you, maybe you like, you know, after a while, it's sort of like, you know, the fish in water doesn't know it's in water. You know, after you've been in, like, depression for a really long time, it just becomes normal. But God wants something different for our city. God wants joy for our city. And so, so that's what we're doing here. A- and this series has got five different themes. And Jerry started it off with unity. Uh, and then the past two weeks I've preached on prayer and on uh, the Holy Spirit last week. And this week we're going to talk about gospel awakening. Are you familiar with the term? Have you heard the term gospel awakening before? Some of you would say yes, some of you no. And so we're on the same page. Just so that we're all on the same page, let's define terms here. Okay? When, when we talk about uh, gospel awakening, usually it's paired with this word revival. Have you heard that word? You've heard the word revival. And usually, or they both describe an, an attentiveness, an awakeness to the gospel. The difference between awakening and revival is really just who is becoming attentive and aware and responsive to the gospel. And so uh, a revival is, is when the church of Jesus Christ becomes again awakened to and aware of Jesus and the gospel and the power of the gospel. It's something that happens among God's people. This is something that, that, that uh, usually happens after uh, over a season where, you know, the, the sort of the church becomes routinized, you know, it gets real boring and routine, and, and we sort of think we got it figured out, right? We sort of get to this place where we, we, we understand how to do the whole church thing, and you've probably been in those settings, and then usually in, in, in over the course of those seasons, abuses of power and things that don't really represent Jesus start to show up. And then God births in people this desire to see something different, to see something different happen. And so just uh, he sparks among his people this this sort of deep repentance and this deep turning towards Jesus. And it's really marked by a church wide desire to follow Jesus, to live in submission to Jesus, to be uh, to, to pursue holiness and this is sort of the, the, the thing uh, that, that would mark revival. Now, this is not like the, the white tent revival. Any of you from the South and you've seen the like, right, every summer we schedule revival. I'm not sure how you schedule such thing uh, since it's a movement of God. But, you know, every summer we schedule a week and we put the tent up and we say, well, this is when revival is going to happen. This is, uh, so we schedule it and we bring some speakers in and we, we basically hold church for a week outside. And this is sort of the idea behind this whole uh, revival thing that, that people have, have understood, but that's not what we're talking about. That revival is, is this, this place where the Holy Spirit transforms people inside the church. Now, this is uh, historically is, is, is something that we see all over the place through the Old Testament. Any of you ever read the Old Testament? 
That's a crazy book, isn't it? It's like these people like hear from God and they're like, yes, we'll do whatever you say. And then they get kind of good at doing what they think God said. And then after a while, they sort of neglect what God said. and They kind of do their own thing. And so God's like, well, if you don't want to follow me, then I'm just going to take my hand away and all the nations will judge you. And then they get stuck in this place where they've been attacked and taken over and they call out to God. Oh, God, would you rescue us? And of course, he's the kind of God who does such a thing. And so he rescues them, and they say, yes, we'll serve you all the days of our life. And then the same thing happens, right? If you read the Old Testament over and over and over again, the same cycle. It's true of the church, isn't it? That you see the church just sort of torched off alive. I mean, that's what happened at the early days of the vineyard. It's like people just came to know Jesus, and they surrendered themselves to Jesus, and they were like the trajectory of their lives were forever altered. And then over a period of time, we just kind of get good, right? You like you, you, you have people in, you come Holy Spirit, whammo, here's how it goes, right? And that's just, and we, and we get good at doing the thing, and then God's like, well, I'm not, that's not, that's not, your heart's not right in this, right? Like we see this all throughout church history. And so this is what you would call revival. Revival happens among the church. Now, awakening happens to the culture around the church. Gospel awakening is sort of an increased awareness and responsiveness in the people outside of the church. This is the, the, the place where God has prepared the hearts of a culture to receive the gospel, to respond to the gospel. A present-day example, I didn't have time to put a video on this. I wanted to. Uh, a present-day example is what's happening in North Africa among, among Muslims uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with this, but there's a, a book that I read. Uh, it's called Miraculous Movements. It's by a guy named Jerry Trousdale. And, and he writes this book about how God is, is changing the hearts of the Muslim culture in northern, uh, northern Africa it's in such ways like that <coughs> people are seeing visions of Jesus in their dreams, and they're turning their lives over to Jesus that they see in their dreams, and then a whole city comes to know Jesus. A whole city gets transformed, just like that, just like that. And so this would be the picture of what awakening looks like, that, that a whole culture is transformed by the power of the gospel. So revival happens, if, if you're curious, if you want to look, uh, if you look on Google, just Google uh, Christian movement among Muslims, and there's all kinds of videos. Like, you know, you can go to the images, whatever, the videos. And just watch the videos. I mean, this stuff is just amazing. It'll blow your mind. Um, but so revival happens inside the church. Awakening happens outside the church. And I'm going to talk today about gospel awakening. Like what would it look like for the city of Altoona, the culture around us, to be transformed, to respond to the gospel? And I want to look at a story from the book of John. If you have a Bible, you can turn to John. We've got to figure out a way to put these in a place that's not so weird for you to like walk up, up and grab one. Not that anybody is like completely weirded out about walking in front of me, but turn to John 4, and this is a little bit of a, a, a long story. Some of you will be familiar with it. Thanks, Pete. Appreciate it. You make everybody else feel comfortable. John 4, and we're going to begin this story in verse 4. John 4, beginning in verse 4, here's what it says. Now he, that's Jesus, had to go through Samaria. 
So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. She's like, I just don't want to come out and get water anymore. He's like talking spiritually. She's talking physically. He says, he told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said, what you've just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see you're a prophet. No kidding. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Meet a holy man, talk holy talk, right? Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. And we'll pause right there. So Jesus has this interaction with this Samaritan woman. And he basically reads her mail, right? He could tell her, like, her background and all this stuff. And at the end of this exchange, she's sort of, like, now aware that Jesus is the Messiah. So, you know, this is the the first point that I want to make is that gospel awakening begins by personal encounter with Jesus. Gospel awakening begins by personal encounter with Jesus. Before the gospel can go out from here to transform our community, It has to transform our lives. It has to transform our space. It has to transform us before it can go out from here. Gospel awakening won't happen until revival happens. It doesn't happen out there until it happens in here. You see, friends, before the culture will turn around and become open to the gospel, we have to return to the gospel. We have to experience and know the power of the gospel. You can't eat what you're not cooking, right? You can't sell what you're not cooking. If, you, if, you're not do, if we're not doing it, they can't get it, right? That's all I'm trying to say. I heard it sounded a lot better in my head. It sounded way better in my head. So I said it, and it didn't work out. But we have to become the people who, are be, who be have become so enamored by the power of the gospel and the, so in love with the person of Jesus that we are committed to doing whatever it God calls us to, no matter how foolish, it seems. 
I want to show you a video here. This is uh, a video of John Wimber, the guy that, uh, that God used to, to begin the vineyard. Uh, and this is a, a just a little clip from his uh, testimony video called I'm a Fool for Christ. So uh, let me show you this video. The next thing I know, I'm on my knees. Now, I don't know, to, to save my life, I don't know whether I got out of the chair or was shoved. <laughs> I know theologically that that's very important, but I've never been able to figure it out. <laughs> All I know was the next thing, I was on my knees and I was trying to pray this prayer of repentance they kept talking about. But I couldn't pray. All I could do was go, oh, 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 for hours. I, it seemed like hours, at least a half hour. My nose is running. It's all over my chest, you know. My eyes are swelling shut. I'm sobbing. My body is racked with pain. And, I'm, and about 20 minutes into it, I'm realizing that I'm making an utter fool of myself. And I thought, if this doesn't work, I'm going to die. How will I explain this, you know, if this thing doesn't connect? And so the next thing I know, I'm ha I have a, a, a recollection. Years before, I'd gotten in, into a situation where I was out of money, came back to Los Angeles. This is when I was a traveling musician. And I needed some money, and I had a friend that did drugs. And he stole them. He was a connection, and he stole them in Pershing Square, you know, great downtown if you haven't been there, uh, you missed it. You had to be there. You had to visit it once to understand it. Pershing Square is a notorious park in the center of uh, Los Angeles. And so I went down there to find my friend who I knew would have some money because drug dealers always have money. And I, and I needed some money. I wanted to borrow some money from him. And uh, while I was waiting for him, it was kind of a miserable day, kind of rainy and everything. I was waiting for him to come. And here comes this guy walking along, and he's got one of these signs, like an Eat It Joe type of sign, you know, front and back. And on the front it said, I am a fool for Christ. And on the back it said, whose fool are you? Well, when I saw it at the time, I thought, oh, weird religious weirdo. You know, you get by. But here I am, all these years later, I'm kneeling on my friend's living room floor. I'm sobbing. I'm suddenly realized that I'm making a complete fool of myself. And I, said, and I remember that thing. I thought, that's it. That's it. I'm going to be his fool. That's it. And I resolved in my heart at that moment that from that point out, I was going to do the foolish thing in the eyes of the world. I didn't know it was going to be the foolish thing in the eyes of the church, too. <laughs> but I determined that night that if Christ was worth coming to at all, he was worth coming all the way with. And so I got up from there and I met a fool ever since. Wherever I could be. In every way that I could. In his lifetime, John Wimber led thousands of people to Christ and sparked off what is what we know as the Vineyard Movement that has gone around the globe. And the reason this happened at least in part, is because he resigned himself that I'm going to do whatever the foolish thing in the eyes of the world is if it's what Jesus wants me to do. That that's, that, that's the idea, that he would do his life as a fool for Christ. It starts with us. With where you sit right now, take stock of your relationship with Jesus. 
I mean, are we content with just coming to church and singing some songs and sitting in the rows and hearing a message and then going home? Are we content with that? Or are we truly fools for Christ? Are we truly people who will do the foolish thing if it's what God asks us to do? I mean, have we surrendered our lives completely to Jesus? Are our lives being transformed by the gospel? Are we people whose lives are marked by an increasing obedience to Jesus? Ask yourself those questions. And if it's not true of us, if we can't say that's true of us, then why should it ever happen outside of here? Like, how are we ever going to see that happen if it's not true of us? As some of us in, in this room, you maybe would say, that it's not true of me because I've never been given an opportunity to respond to Jesus. And I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that. But for some of us, the thing that keeps us from truly being fools for Christ is our own religious pride, right? Don't we all have a little bit of that? If we've been following Jesus for any amount of time, we kind of think we got this thing figured out. And then God calls us to do something stupid. And we sort of go, well, I have a lot to lose now. What will people think? We sort of live in this state of mind where we think we've, like, achieved it, right? We've made it. And if, if we were to respond in whatever way God called us to, well, what would people think? We might look foolish. Here's what it looks like. Here's what it looks like. It looks like an invitation to get prayer at the end of a service that you know applies to you. I share a, a, an invitation to come and get prayer, and you're like, man, that is totally me. And then you go, but if people saw me go forward for that, they might not think I'm as put together as I thought I was. That, that's what it looks like. All right. It looks like an invitation to surrender your life to Jesus because you know you've never actually done it. And instead of doing so, you go, well, people might think, I, I mean, I've been in church a long time. And uh, what would people think if I responded to Jesus? What would people think? It looks like trying to button up the emotions you're feeling that God wants to do something about because people might not think you have it all together. And some of you are feeling like I, that I'm talking directly to you. Rest assured, I'm not. But God is. Here's how I know that this is what you're, what you're feeling because I deal with the same exact thing. I deal with the exact same thing that you do. And so when I say this, I'm really just talking to myself. Somebody shares a word that I should go get prayer for, and the first thought goes, yeah, but I'm a pastor. People shouldn't know that I have issues like that. I can't move. I'm going to stay here, right? I'm just like you, right? Or maybe I'm the only one. Let me tell you a story that will sort of illustrate this. I was uh, in VLI. It was 2010, 2011, 2012. I finished in 2012. And uh, at the end of one of our classes, VLI, for those of you who don't know, was the Vineyard Leadership Institute. So it was like the uh, biblical training and leadership training for, for pastors and planters uh, of churches. And so I mean, we get to the end of one of our classes, and the professor's like, all right, we're going to have just a time to pray. And he says, here's what we're going to do. I really feel like God is calling us to to invite those of you forward who need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And that, that we're going to pray for you. And 
And, and I knew, like, I've been filled and overwhelmed by the power of the Holy Spirit before, but I knew in that moment that God was saying, this is for you. And I'm like, like it's not really seniors when it's a two-year program, but I'm a senior, right? And I'm like, here's all these newer ones, and, you know, and, and so I start thinking, I need to get up. And then I go, but if I get up, what's everybody going to think? You know, I'm supposed to be the spiritual one in the class, right? Like, and so I didn't get up. And I stayed there. And a whole bunch of people went forward, okay? And then here's, here's how I just felt like a, just a real fool. Then he said, all the rest of you who have, this, this, uh, have had this uh, experience, you're going to come and pray for the rest of them. So now I'm going to stand up anyway and go forward. But it's to pretend like I'm not supposed to be the one getting prayer, right? So I go up, and I'm just praying these, like, lead balloons. It's like, bleh. I got nothing for you. And I'm just standing there, and God's like, it was supposed to be, you were supposed to get prayer for them. What was my hesitancy? It was because what would people think? We all have that experience, don't we? At some level, we feel like we've got this church thing, this religion thing figured out. And so, no, I'm not going to do that because I'm beyond that. But God is saying, why don't you come and look foolish for me? Would you look foolish for me? Because this is what I'm asking you to do. There's never a time, there is never a time where we become experts at following Jesus. It never happens. And at any given time, Jesus is going to ask you to do something that makes you, or could make you, and probably will, make you look stupid. If you've ever walked up to somebody to offer a, a, a word for them that you felt like God gave you, and they go, no, that's not me. You go, oh, I'm the weirdo. Right? Have you ever done that? You've done that, some of you. Right? There's never a time we become experts at this. We're always just trying to go, God, what are you saying? And how do I do that? And sometimes it just looks ridiculous. But we have to become people who are content with, Jesus said it, so I'm going to do it. At every level. Sometimes it's the healing that you need means you're going to end up on the floor, and some of us are like, there's no way am I going to go forward for that because I know I might end up on the floor. What will people think? Don't let what will people think get in your way. You have to experience it first before others will experience it through you. Whatever God wants to do out in the world, he wants to do in you first. On our best days, we're fools for Christ. On our worst days, we're just fools. And that's it. We are people who are trying to hear the voice of God and do what he says. And if we want to live a life of meaning and purpose of following Jesus, we have to get comfortable with the fact that we're likely going to look like morons half the time. Right? I mean, maybe that's an overstatement. A slight overstatement. But at the very least, we're going to look like fools sometimes. But it's because Jesus said so. So gospel awakening begins with a personal encounter with Jesus. The second point I want to make is gospel awakening spreads as normal followers of Jesus share their stories of encounter. Pick this story up at verse 27. It says, just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Now skip down to verse 39. It says, 
Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. So the Samaritan woman, after her encounter with Jesus, she goes out to tell everyone. says, let me tell you what just happened to me. You have got to hear this. And as a result, the people in the town experience a gospel awakening, right? That the people come to know Jesus. Gospel awakening happens when normal followers of Jesus share their encounters with other people. You know, one of the things I love uh, the most in, in this church is when we do baptism. I love this. I, like, this is like one of my favorite things that we ever do, right? And I know it is true for some of, some of the rest of you. I love when we get to do baptism because I think at some level it's sort of this tangible like, yes, we're doing what God has called us to do. See, we're doing it. We're actually doing what Jesus has asked us to do, that people are being impacted by the gospel. <coughs> but you know what I love even more? You know what I love even more? This has happened a couple of times in this church. I love that Megan was participating. Sorry, I call you out. I love that Megan was participating in this today. I love it. Like last year, we, we baptized Ben. I didn't ask, the, but Ben brought Troy. We baptize Ben, and then Troy comes to know Jesus. Like, this is what it's supposed to look like, friends. That we baptize Megan, and I'm going to tell you this story. I know some of you have heard the story. Bear with me. I'm like an old man trying to tell stories. Uh, (laughs) Three years ago, I met Megan at Salt. Felt like God told me to go pray for her. So I walked up to her to pray for her. And it was one of the most awkward prayer times I think I've ever had, certainly that she's ever had. <laughs> because she told me, well, I'm not really, I don't really believe in God. Um, and she certainly didn't want somebody like me praying for her. But I said, hey, can I pray for you? And I think I, think I caught you off guard, right? And she was like, yeah, you can pray. So I prayed for her. And it was just, it was just weird, right? It was super weird. So now here's this weird Christian guy that just prayed for her and weirded her out. And I didn't see Megan again for another year. So the year goes by. I see her at the clay cup. She saw me coming this time. Um, And I walked up and I said, can I sit next to you? And so I sat down and just started talking. And she told me she was mad at God, which I was like, well, that's progress. You actually believe him enough to be mad at him. So we talked for a little while. And then, and then I, uh, I was like, can I pray for you? I'm sure she was, you already had your answer figured out. She's like, no. <laughs> okay. So I left. And I was like, man, I want her to know Jesus. I don't know that there's any way that that's going to happen, but I want her to know Jesus. So a few months later, she walks into down at the train station into the, the space. And I see her in the back, and I'm like, all right, I got to, like, temper my excitement, right? I'm like, Megan is here good to see you. Glad you're here. I'm sure you wanted to leave, right? You were trapped, weren't you? <laughs> I didn't know that it was your turn. So, 
So Joe tricked her into coming to the vineyard. And, and, and she came and she stayed. And then she came back a handful more times. And just over a year ago, last the beginning of last year, she, we were walking out. And, um, and she said, I thought you should know that I gave my life to Jesus. And I'm like, contain yourself. Don't get too excited because freak her out. I was like, that's great. That's great. I'm so glad for you. Inside, I'm like. <laughs> I was like, well, that's wonderful. That's, that's really good. That's really good. And so. And, and, like, I went home and I was like, Megan gave her life to Jesus. I can't believe it. It's amazing. So, uh, last summer, in downtown, we got a chance to, to, I got a chance to baptize Megan. And just to see, like, the unlikeliest, sorry, the unlikeliest of candidates to come to follow Jesus. And I get the chance to baptize her. And it was just such an honor. And to know Megan and to know that, the process to get to where she would surrender to Jesus was just completely unlikely. And even since following Jesus, it has not been easy for her. It has not been a cakewalk. For, I mean, it's not, never mind. It's not been a cakewalk. We'll just put it that way for her to follow Jesus. And the story would be awesome if it ended there, right? That would be an awesome story, but it doesn't end there. You see, Megan has, has said, let me tell you about my encounter with Jesus. And now we baptize two people that Megan shared those stories with who said, yeah, I'm going to follow Jesus too. This is what it's supposed to look like, friends. This is what it's supposed to look like. And I think this is just the beginnings of seeing the city come to know Jesus. But the way it happens is because you take your encounters outside these walls. When you have an experience of Jesus, you go tell everybody. Say, you have got to know this. I think it's funny, Megan, whenever you, you were telling me, she told me this, that, that people go, well, you just have this nice put-together easy life as a Christian. And I was like, Megan, that's what you told me. <laughs> but her story is what connects with people, right? That this is how gospel awakening happens is that normal people share their encounters with Jesus. Listen, the lie that we've bought into in 21st century America is that if we can just get them to come to church, they'll get saved. Right? This is the strategy that, that they've, they've sold us in, in church growth and all that stuff, that if we can just get people to come to church, well, we'll get them saved. That's not the way this works, friends. It's that you take your story out into the world and they, they come to know Jesus out there. They'll end up here, but this isn't the goal. This is sort of what happens after people come to know Jesus. I just met her today. Like, that's the way this works, friends. I think, honestly, and this is, has nothing to do with what, I mean, it sort of has nothing to do with what I'm talking about. I think we've created spiritually flabby Christians when we say, bring them to church and I'll get them saved. I think the invitation that God has for all of you is that you would share your story and that you would get to lead people to Jesus. And I'll, I'll fill up the tank so you can baptize them. You can do it in the bathtub. I don't care. That's the way this is supposed to work, friends. 
I think we're on the cusp of, of a, an amazing awakening in this city. I think we're standing at the door of awakening in this city. And the only thing that we, we have to do, the only part that we have to play is just to tell people what experience we've had with Jesus. That's it. That's it. Some of you have had experiences and you know that you're like, I know who I could tell that to. I know somebody who would be impacted by that. I know somebody who was hopeless like me. I know somebody who's anxious like me. I know somebody who's depressed like I was. We need to be people who share our stories. So here's what we're going to do. Why don't you guys stand up, and we're going to have the worship team go back, back up to play. We'll have one last song. If when I said that you said, well, the, the reason I have never responded to Jesus is because I've never been given an opportunity. I want to give you the opportunity. The invitation that Jesus gives to you is that you trade your old busted life for his new life. That he will give you a new life. And so if that's you, if you're like, I'm in this place where I have never surrendered my life to Jesus, but I want to. Would you just put your hand up? During this last time, I uh, some of you know, uh, saw a picture I posted, Mike and Betty Fry from Morrow Bay came. Uh, and Jerry and I w just remarked how, um, how simple everything was. That all we do, all we ever do is we invite the Holy Spirit to come and he just does. And so what we're going to do during this last song is we're just going to invite the Holy Spirit to come and then we just want to respond to whatever God is doing. So... We're just going to, while Pete's playing, uh, we're going to, we're just going to take a, a time. And I just want you to like, just so you can be still. And we're just going to invite the Holy Spirit to come. And I want you to just, will you be a fool for Christ? Will you respond to whatever God, whatever God is up to? So Holy Spirit, would you just come?